and welcome to another episode of the Trifecta Podcast. This is your host, Jack, and with me today are my guests. I'm Renee Powers. And I'm Melissa. And if you would like to talk about your podcasts, because you are both on podcasts, please feel free to do so. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I host the Wild Cozy Truth Podcast, which is an interview-based podcast where I talk to everyday women about their extraordinary stories. Um, I call it a personal development podcast for feminist millennials who are skeptical of personal development. (laughs) Very nice. Every week I have a pop culture discussion show just called The Review Show, and it's on a network called The Whatnots, which is W-H-A-T-N-A-U-T-S, like astronauts. It's sort of a book club format. We talk about movies, TV shows, anime, manga, comic books, podcasts, narrative podcasts, all kinds of things. And then I am a cast member on the Live Play RPG podcast, The Lost Library. Yes, those are all very fun shows. So our topic today that we're going to be discussing is the Men in Black trilogy, which I'm very excited to talk about. And it's kind of a little bit topical because it won't be a trilogy for much longer. They're making a what I thought would be a reboot, but apparently it's like in continuity with the other movies like emma thompson is reprising her role as agent o so this is more like an international men in black movie that will be coming out soon nice so we might see characters from the original ones i hope so Mm -hmm. but yeah that's on the horizon but i'm excited to talk about the three that star tommy lee jones and will smith so i'm very excited about that but my background with it is that I cannot remember a time in my life before Men in Black. I just remember it being a movie that was watched in my house since I was a young kid. This is a very specific film subgenre, but like the sci-fi action adventure comedy is my favorite like movie subgenre. Mm-hmm. If something is within that realm, I'm usually always guaranteed to love it. Even though I've grown up watching these movies, the third one is the only one I've seen in theaters. But I was very pleasantly surprised by it, and I don't remember seeing many trailers for it. I don't think I ever saw a trailer for this movie. Just going into it, all I knew was that there was going to be time travel involved, and so it it was such a fun ride. Speaking of rides, I love the Universal ride. <laughs> I love the Men in Black alien attack ride. That's always so much fun to go on. I'm just very glad that Barry Sonnenfeld has directed all three of these movies mm-hmm. because they just feel so cohesive, so much like the same film series where I think a lot of franchises don't get that opportunity. And I'm very glad that this one had the same director throughout its entirety. But yeah, that's my background. Do you know if um, he's going to direct the fourth one that's coming out? I am not sure. I should look that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really great for the whole continuity part of it. I had no idea that there was a fourth one. So I was like... When you said that, I was like, holy cow. <laughs> yes, I should probably elaborate on that a little bit more. It's starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson from Thor Ragnarok. Like the two of them are going to be the two main agents in the movie. Time out. I love Tessa Thompson. That's going to be fantastic. I'm trying to see if it says directed by F. Gary Gray, who is not Barry Sonnenfeld. No, I don't know who that is. Well, maybe it is an international director. Yes, maybe. But yeah, what is your background with this, Renee? I did see the first one in theaters. My dad and I used to go to the movies, gosh, like a couple times a month. Um, and we'd go see just like, we would. it was one of those where we wouldn't plan on seeing a movie. We would just show up and like whatever was playing at that time we'd probably go see and so it came out when I was 
I had to double check when I was nine years old. And so maybe it was a little young, but um, it just it always reminds me of my dad. The first one especially always reminds me of him. And because he's the same. I think if you were to ask him sci fi action comedies would be his favorite as well. I I lump this in with Mars Attacks because I think we went to go see them at the same like the same summer or like within a year. I went to see both of them with him. Um and another thing that reminds me of my dad is so Edgar in the first film is played by Vincent Donofrio, who looks exactly like my dad. <laughs> So anytime I see him, it just, I just think about my dad. It's cute. But yeah, I, I think I've only seen the third one once. I am a huge Will Smith fan through and through. I grew up on Fresh Prince. Yeah. So anything that he does, I am most likely going to see (laughs) as soon as possible. So I love comedies. I love action movies, especially. I have a very specific taste in movies. Like you mentioned Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. Like, okay, Thor Ragnarok is probably one of my favorite movies. <laughs> Anything that's kind of comic book based or um, a little outside the ordinary or a superhero e, I'm on board with. And so, Men in Black tickles all of my giggle bones in those in those regards. Um, and then the second one, Rosario Dawson is one of my favorite actresses. So, uh, anytime I see her in a film, too, I just get really excited. And I won't go into what I think about the second one, but that's my background with it. They remind me of my dad and it's one of my favorite genres. And I remember seeing at least the first one in theaters, <laughs> probably the third too. I don't remember about the second. I've actually never seen any of these in theaters somehow mysteriously. I think cause they're always summer movies and I've just been busy with all the other summer movies, but I had the VHS tape of the first men in black and I watched it over and over again when mm-hmm. I was a kid. It was one of my favorite movies. I also really liked X-Files as a kid. So this just fit right <laughs> in there. And I even specifically remember all the trailers that were on that same VHS tape. Like when I think of men in black, I also think about the two minutes I have seen of my best friend's wedding. <laughs> That's one cohesive unified thing for me. The second one I also watched a good amount of times. And the third one I I just watched for the second time in preparation for this podcast. But yeah, this is something I definitely treasure. I have a lot of very positive childhood memories associated with this movie. With the first two, really, because that came out when I was maybe like 12. And yeah, they've persisted. I uh, I will say it, I think they hold up and I still enjoy them just as much now as I did when I was younger. They totally hold up. After I was rewatching, I only got a chance to rewatch the first two. But I, first off, I'm incredibly impressed with the CGI for 1997. Yeah. Like super great. But anytime they're on, it's just it's one of those movies that if it's on like TBS or like FX or something, yeah, I'm going to sit down and watch it because it just it's a feel good movie. It's one of those that you're like, it's going to feel really fun. It's going to put me in a good mood. I know what's going to happen. And everything about it is just hilarious still to this day. (laughs) I will say watching all of these movies again in preparation for this made me also want to watch Wild Wild West. Yes. Which I've I've never seen, but I just remember that coming out around the same time. And like it had Will Smith, it had the same director, Mm -hmm. and it might have been on the VHS, like one of the trailers or... It was on a similar movie VHS that I would always watch, and it just feels like a movie that I know, even though I've never seen. Yeah. 
And I love Will Smith's performance of it, his live performance. I don't know if it was for the VMAs or what it was, mm-hmm. but where he like rides into the theater on a horse. Yes. And <laughs> don't remember this. I have to Google it. <laughs> it's amazing. It's it's a good four minutes of your time. Mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder is there. Yeah, he like comes out on like a piano or something and... It's a good time. Moving into the first movie, The First Men in Black, which came out in 1997. So re-watching this movie, I knew that this franchise was based on a comic. I could never remember the comic distributor for it. But for some reason, when I was re-watching it during the opening credits, I misread Malibu comic as Marvel comic. <laughs> And so the entire movie, I was, like, trying to piece connections to other Marvel properties Ah. and, like, how in one of the first scenes when Will Smith says, your boy Captain America over here. (laughs) And, like, Frank the Pug says something about a Guardian of the Galaxy. Yes, I heard that too! Yes, (laughs) and so I'm thinking the whole time that these movies are all connected and that the men in black like, are a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then I see the second movie and it's clear that it's this Malibu comic and I'm like, oh, damn. I got so excited for nothing. But I think we need to start a conspiracy theory that they actually are part of the same universe and Rosario Dawson plays the same character. Let's start that theory. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that would be amazing. She went back to Earth and got a nursing degree. Exactly. I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's interesting rewatching this because I think I was young enough to where I wasn't able to understand plot or how things piece together mm-hmm. in movies. I just remember parts, like how little kids say, do you remember this part? Or my favorite part of the movie is this. And so it was interesting watching it as an adult and actually being able to see how things connected because it's just one of those movies that I remember scenes from, but never remember the whole thing. And it felt like almost kind of watching a new movie yeah. for the first time. But yeah, I think it's a great introduction to this universe. I think it's very well paced. It's almost kind of timeless in a way. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't know this movie took place in the mid-90s if not for Will Smith's, like, one outfit that he wears. Yeah. That is, so... oh. is that at the very end? It's, like, in the middle where he's still... <laughs> it's it's really all of his outfits. Yeah. yeah. That's true. When it's not the suit, that's true. But do you remember at the very end he's wearing this, like, updated men in black suit with, like, this weird, almost priest-like collar? And I was like... I don't think that was ever in trend, Will Smith. (laughs) No, yeah, I'm very glad they kind of did away with the different variants of the men in black suits. And then Mm -hmm. the next two movies, everything's a lot more streamlined and unified. I like that a lot better. Yeah, same. I really like the idea of becoming completely anonymous. And so I like the idea of these lives that the men in black agents live. I just think it's so fascinating, especially in this day and age with social media and how like I I don't know exactly how to word it. Like you see these articles or you hear these things about if you're not online, you don't exist. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to think that probably men and black agents could exist even more so nowadays than they could in the 90s when you were just more anonymous in general. And so I, I think that's very interesting that that whole concept hasn't seemed outdated at all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you think that the men in black or a an organization similar to them actually do exist i'd like to believe 
Yeah. Put on your yeah. tinfoil hats, we kids. No way of knowing. <laughs> but, I mean, have you seen things that you can't explain? Most of us have. I would like to believe that there is something like that out there. I would like to be an MIB agent. If oh. someone's listening, please let me know. You're the new Agent J. Yes, <laughs> I would love to be the new Agent J. Said I can be Agent M. Yes. <laughs> agent R doesn't have the same kind of ring. <laughs> You're agenter. You're more agent than the rest agent-er. of us. <laughs> I like that a lot. You're the supreme agent. <laughs> One other note that I made about this movie is that even though it's still unnecessary, I like that the female coroner is the one who tells Jay he has pretty eyes. Yeah. Like, that seemed very, uh, it was a very nice reversal. Yeah, I can, outside of Harry Potter, I can't think of a lot of instances of somebody telling a dude he is, his eyes are at all notable. And especially like going into the other two movies, which I won't give away too much of how I feel at the moment, but I think there's a lot of unnecessary sexualization in those two movies. And so it was very interesting to see this one seem a lot more progressive than the other two in that sense. But the one other note, well, the two notes that I have is that the alien squid baby is really cute. Mm -hmm. It's surprisingly cute. And also, I just, I love the end credits song. It changed me as a person. (laughs) One of my favorite things about the first one is I'm going to go back to Vincent D'Onofrio and my like massive respect for him, mostly because he looks like my dad, but also I think he is an entirely underrated actor. I think that especially this character. So to jog everybody's memories, he plays Edgar, who is, um, well, first off, he's like an abusive redneck in the very beginning. And then he runs into a alien spacecraft that's crash landed on his property and is becomes the host for it. And when he becomes the, the host, there's this like really impressive physicality to and it's so stark too like and it and it progresses too so it starts out like kind of twitchy and a little weird and he walks into the house and he wants sugar in water more sugar (laughs) and I think that that established especially that scene where he's asking for more sugar is so it just establishes how freaking quirky this character is going to be and how I don't know it's a an understated, almost slapstick routine, but you, it's totally believable. And I think that's what's so admirable about it is it's like a really believable in this universe, right? Like we don't necessarily think people are possessed by aliens, but if they were like, that makes sense to me. That makes sense that he's like kind of twitchy and walks weird. And as the film goes on, I mean, props to the makeup and special effects team too, because he gets like grosser and grosser, like his eye sockets get like looser and looser and it's just like I don't know I think that's one of my favorite things about the entire franchise is his performance in the first film is just spectacular it's legendary and I also really have to hand it to that actress who plays his wife I know <laughs> it's such a small part but it's one of the biggest parts of the movie like in my memory like that's such a small subtle but like completely excellently executed performance and I always forget that lady's name but whenever she shows up in anything I'm always so excited to see her she's so good yeah 
Yeah. When I rewatched this, I was really surprised that the movie, like I kind of forgot the whole beginning of the movie at like the Mexican border and then the beginning of the movie with um, Agent J when he's still like James Edwards III, when he still has a real human man name, when he's like chasing down the guy and the guy blinks sideways. Like I forgot all of that. I forgot mm-hmm. that the movie didn't just start with the UFO crashing on the farm because mm-hmm. like that earlier stuff, it's good, but like... When we get to the farm and when we get to Vincent D'Onofrio and the woman, I think her name's Shaban or something like that. Like she's got a real Celtic name and then like a very ordinary last name that I always forget. But when we get to the two of them, like it's so excellent and so much better than it really needed to be. Like you put enough special effects makeup on the guy, like he'll be menacing enough. And, you know, the role of like the sort of downtrodden housewife doesn't need to be anything very special, but everybody really went for it. Like, it's <laughs> just so great. They headed out of the park on that very small part of this overall movie and that elevated it into being something much bigger. Yeah, totally, totally. I think that everybody had this wacky script and they just decided to commit to it. And it totally worked. And I don't think any of them expected it to work. I wouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, I think this movie, it's very funny, but it also has very poignant emotional beats, like especially watching this when I was a little kid and like stuff like that would kind of, you know, gloss over me. Like I wasn't really paying attention to the tear jerking moments in any movie when I'm like eight years old. I just want to see shiny things. But like the whole conversation about imagine what you'll know tomorrow and yeah, it's worth it. And just Jay just sitting there on the bridge thinking about this massive sacrifice mm-hmm. all night, like hit me as an eight-year-old child. Like it doesn't go for the emotion a lot, but when it does it, it knows how to do it just at the right level. Oh my gosh, yeah. And I think the second one does it even better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I will say, uh, even after watching this movie so many times as a kid... I think mostly just through like the progression of visual technology as time goes on, I noticed a detail in this movie I've never noticed before. In one of those tabloid magazines that Kay is looking through for clues, one of the headlines is man eats own house, (laughs) which I never noticed, but it's like my new favorite like joke in the movie. And I love like the subtle background things in these movies. And now there's so many thrown in there. Like, Two decades later, like, oh, here's a joke you've never noticed. It's a well put together universe. They've thought through every thread and every background prop and it's just really cohesive. Yeah. I think I also really like the idea that most aliens are just trying to live their lives. Like they don't want to hurt anyone. They're just trying to make a decent living here Mm -hmm. in New York. So, you know, just let most of them be and the people that are an actual threat you know, go after not the people, the aliens that are an actual threat disguised as people. Mm-hmm. Go after them. Can we go back to the very beginning and talk about the kind of play, double entendre play on words of alien? Yeah. Yes. And how they're smuggling in illegal immigrants at the border. And, you know, it's so often called aliens and... I think it was so interesting and and almost like humanizing in a time where we weren't necessarily talking about immigration as much as we are now that Kay just 
speaks in Spanish, just it happens to be like fairly proficient in Spanish and then tells them all to leave. <laughs> like, you're free. Like, well, go on, have a nice life. And then he's like, but this guy. <laughs> he's so nice to them. Like when he says like, oh, welcome to America, abuela. Like, it's very sincere. Totally, totally. Like, that's clearly not his issue, like not his problem. I think that's also like, like we're talking, it was a little ahead of its time in terms of it was progressive, fairly progressive for women and fairly progressive for people of color and, and immigrants. Like, we weren't necessarily thinking about this cultural commentary in an alien movie in the late 90s, but here we are talking about it now, 20 years later. Still works. So moving into Men in Black 2, which came out in 2002, I think this movie is so reflective of early 2000s culture. Yeah. And just the fact that it has so much Burger King yes. placement <laughs> and Johnny Knoxville is in it <laughs> and just all of these things. It made me a little bit sad watching this because it just reminded me of days gone by. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a simpler time back then. I would like to return to this time. Yeah. And when our world was this way. <laughs> yeah, I think overall, though, the movie's a lot more backwards in terms of its treatment of women, which is kind of disappointing and uncomfortable at times. I think... What I was bothered by the most was when Rosario Dawson's character, Laura, is, like, staying with all of those little... The warm guys? Yes, those guys. And Jay says something about, yeah, just don't fall asleep or something. I'm like, oh, that is terrifying. And it was weird that the next scene, like, they're just doing something very normal. Like, what happens in the next scene almost completely negates what happened in that previous scene. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't... Like, if you knew where you were going, why did you start there? Yeah. <laughs> it It's just, it, it felt so unnecessary. Yeah. But I love the inclusion of Frank more in this one. Yeah. He's an adorable little pug. I want a pug partner in crime. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when this movie first came out and all of the commercials would show Frank singing to I Will Survive. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just like the funniest thing. And <laughs> him barking to Who Let the Dogs Out. It's so on the nose, but it just really works for me. I love it. And I love the scene where Jay shows up to Kay's post office yes. job and he starts speaking an alien to all of the post office workers. Mm-hmm. It's just so it's funny. Just casual beatboxing. Like, I want to go to that planet where they beatbox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I love it. I think overall this movie is just, it's sillier, but it explores more of the universe and it's just so much fun. And it develops the characters a little bit more and just shows us more of how they have grown and changed mm-hmm. since we last saw them. And I I really enjoy it. Oh, and I really love Kay's photo on his post office badge. I never noticed this before, <laughs> but he has, like, this nice little smile, and, like, you never see him smiling. It's so wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> I want to kind of push back on... I want to complicate this, like, more regressive narrative that we're talking about a little bit so this was one of those where I always catch it on TV and I never I don't think I've seen the beginning since like 2002 then when I rewatched it I realized or I remembered or saw that the villain and I forget her name Serlina Serlina that's right 
she takes over a host body and then becomes this um, Victoria's Secret model, which I think is a really interesting choice. And I don't think it's necessarily like, oh, we're going to make the villain super hot. I think it was... And because she first walks out of the bush with a pot belly or like a beer gut and then looks back at the ad and then has this like smoking hot bod. I think that's almost like a critique (laughs) of... Yeah. Advertising and feminine bodies and advertising. So on the one hand, like, yeah, of course, like they're going to put her in lingerie and it's going to sell and whatever. And but she makes comments about like her breasts at some point when she's checking in at headquarters. And I think that she's kind of not used to having this body and can see what how other people respond to it and uses that as her power. And I think that's a really interesting discussion of femininity and presenting oneself as femme, especially. Yeah. And that really works with her character and like the construct of this movie specifically, because this takes place over a really compressed amount of time. And certainly in this whole thing is that she knows she's on the clock. She has to get in and get this done as fast as possible. So she kind of picks what she thinks is going to work on everybody. Like, I'm going to be a face everybody is going to trust. Everybody is going to fall for. I can just, I don't even have to pull out like any kind of alien menace. I will just be hot enough that things will kind of work my way around me. Totally. And I think that's such an interesting character choice. And they do. And you mentioned time. And now I'm just going off the deep end. So, you know, for those of you listening at home and for you guys. So I have uh, I'm ABD in communication and media studies. So I basically studied feminist media for my PhD. And um, anyways, but you bring up this. So I, I can geek out on these kinds of themes like till the cows come home. But you mentioned this idea of time and she's on the clock and it's like, okay, well that kind of reminds me of like the biological clock and women are only hot, quote unquote, hot for so long. And so they have to do these things while they're still, you know, desirable by media standards. And so that's really interesting that time is of the essence for her and time is of the essence for women of a certain age as well. That's true. I feel enlightened. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) One of the other things I love about this movie is David Cross. (laughs) I love that. I mean, I looked into it. He does play the same character in the first one and the second one. He's just got a new job. Um, I think his name is like Newton. Or no, no, that was the cat's name. I forget his name in it. But he plays the same guy. And uh, I love that they establish a history of the men in black through him. That it kind of, it sounds, it seems to me that in the first one, he saw something or recognized something that kind of piqued his interest. And then he just took that thread and ran with it and then started getting really into men in black conspiracy theories and was able to enlighten J and K about the light, whatever that was called. The light of Zartha. The light of Zartha. I wrote down things like Balchinian and Nick Cannon question mark, but but I didn't write down the light of Zartha. <laughs> I've seen this movie a lot of times. Like it's been a couple years, but yeah, I've probably seen Men in Black too, like 
seven or eight times in my life. And like there, the details of it have really stuck to me. <laughs> and, and it's one of those movies that I actually quote all the time and don't realize it. One of the things that my husband and I will say, well, I don't know, if somebody goes by an initial, we'll sing the... All, all hail K, all hail K, okay, can you see? It's <laughs> just something that comes up. And when it rains, I think of Laura Vasquez and she cries when it rains or does it rain when she cries? I think that's like one of the most beautiful moments in all of cinema. <laughs> it is, like it's really stuck with me and it's raining tonight. And it's yeah, most of the time when it rains, I think of Rosario tossing. this movie was my introduction to her and uh, i'm very grateful for it like instantaneously i'm like Mm -hmm. i like this girl what i love about this movie i talked about the compressed time frame i think that's really cool that it's just a sort of madcap run the whole movie takes place in like 24 hours the majority of it takes place over like one night and they're just running from one place to another place to another place and all of them are these really specific like over decorated set pieces like nothing in this movie is bland even the post office like it doesn't have to be in a lighthouse but it is and like the the video store is very specific and David Cross's apartment is very specific. Like he's got that huge wall of tapes and it's in like the top floor of like an A-frame house. So he's got the slanted ceiling and it's covered with movie posters and like even the worms apartment. Something I noticed in this watching, I never noticed before is that you see in the background, they have a bar. The bar is stocked entirely with tiny like airplane bottles of booze. Like it's just stuff that they probably pilfered from all of the sort of airport style gift shops at MIB headquarters. Like everything in here is just crammed with tiny details like that. And it's just this weird, like, okay, just race from weird apartment to weird apartment in the middle of the night. And I love that. And how normal that, um, one of my favorite moments is when they bust into this family's house while they're like curled up on the couch watching TV. And he just like, it's his old apartment. It's Kay's old apartment. And he just opens up the wall and there is 11 bajillion weapons. <laughs> I have a question. Do you think that Rosario Dawson's character <laughs> is Kay's daughter? I think that Kay doesn't mind if Jay believes that. I think that might be just a fun in-joke for himself. Like, that's not true. But I like this dynamic if you think that's true. But at the very end, he has kind of... Well, throughout the whole thing, he has a very paternal relationship with her. And at the very end, he says something to her like, you look just like your mother or you're just as beautiful as your mother and sends her off in like the Louvre-esque time capsule or space capsule. Um, I'm not sure what I think, but I think I'm going to follow Kay's lead and pretend and believe that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the movie leads us into thinking that it's true, but also that's such a wormhole to open up like human alien crossbreeding that, Oh, I like that. If it's true, they're like, 
we're not going to get that deep into it. This is all you need to know. You know, he likes this girl. Mm-hmm. He remind you know, she reminds him of another woman he really cared about in the past. Like, that's plenty. That's all you need. Moving into Men in Black 3, which came out an entire 10 years later yeah. in 2012, which I think is interesting. It was a five-year gap between one and two, and then a 10-year gap between two and three. Mm-hmm. But there's not going to be a 20-year gap in between three oh, and thank goodness. this one, which yeah. I don't know if it would be four or just like it branches off into something new. But mm-hmm. yeah, I like how different this one is. Yeah. And it's definitely, it feels connected to the other two, but you can tell that so much has changed in terms of storytelling since Mm -hmm. the last one. Like, it's the most emotional of the three. I think it has the most heart and the most character development. And I think that um, the plot twist with Jay's dad at the end is just like so heartbreakingly brilliant Mm -hmm. and it just like explains so much about this story as a whole Mm -hmm. and like k and j's relationship i think it's just um so well crafted yeah so pleasantly surprised by this i i didn't know if it was going to be good or not when Mm -hmm. i went to see it and i was just really blown away by it and i think it's interesting because I can't tell if it's just in character or if this is the actor, but like Tommy Lee Jones just looks very unenthusiastic throughout this movie. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if like the whole plot line was constructed around him wanting to be in like as little of it as possible. Or yeah. he's like, I I don't want to do another one, but if if I have to, then sure. And you guys can just <laughs> make it a younger me for the most mm-hmm. part. Like, I don't know exactly what you know, the idea was going into that movie, if that might have had something to do with the fact that it Mm -hmm. was mostly a time travel movie at the end. But I really like it. Um, I think this movie has one of the darkest jokes I have ever seen in a movie that I remember. And I didn't catch this when I first saw it, but rewatching it, like when Jay jumps off of this very tall building and he has like the time travel device in his hand, And so he leaps off, and as he's, like, going through, he's going through time and seeing all these events, and there's, like, dinosaurs next Mm -hmm. to him, and then all these buildings are starting to be built, which is an awesome-looking scene. Yeah. Just, it looks really stunning. But a newspaper flies into his face, and he reads it, and it says, Wall Street Crash, and then he looks, and there's other people jumping off the building with him. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That's very dark. And it's so dark, and I, when I was re-watching this, I literally screamed, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, I could not believe they put that in this movie. It's so dark, but also, like... That's also so New York specific. Yeah. And like these whole movie, all these movies are very set in New York. Like I don't think you could put these in like Chicago or LA or anywhere else and have it work as well. So I, it is very dark, but I kind of like that they did reach into a Mm -hmm. real piece of like New York City past to put into that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, it's, it's dark, but it showed a lot of, like, craft and thought at the same time. It wasn't just, like, a suicide jumper. It was like, no, we have suicide jumpers for very specific local historical reasons. <laughs> I think that New York, on that note, I think New York almost acts as its own character in the in the entire trilogy. That it just becomes, like, this entity that adds so much color to the story. And they 
throw in a few of those references of like actual New York history. Like at one point, oh, I think in the first one, Jay Jay plays with something and Kay says something like, don't touch that. That's what caused the New York blackout of 1977 or whatever. (laughs) But yeah, I think that um, New York as a character is something that we could dive into too. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like the inclusion of Coney Island in this one. Yeah. I like seeing... A 1969 version of Coney Island, and there's a sign in the background that says they're featuring the incredible speaking pug. Yeah. So I liked that little nod to mm-hmm. Frank. And I'm glad that Bill Hader showed up as a Stefan-esque Andy Warhol. Yes. <laughs> that was very delightful. Mm-hmm. And I I just love all of the small details of this movie. I I like the time era. I feel like they really considered a lot of different things, but there's like one tiny detail that bothers me. Mm -hmm. And it's that in the first two movies, when you first walk into the MIB building, there's a very specific elevator and it doesn't look like a regular elevator. It's like you step out onto a platform and then the platform lowers. But in the third movie, not only do they have an updated elevator, which would make sense for the movie in Mm -hmm. the present day, but when they go back in time to 1969, they have a different elevator still. It's not the same one from the first two movies. And it's like one of those small things that I feel like, I mean, not many people would notice it, but in a movie where it seems like they thought of so many things, how did they miss that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Another component of this movie that I really love is Griffin. I think he's such a fun character. For some reason, those kind of characters I really connect with, and it's maybe not on a good level, like having OCD and always like thinking (laughs) of so many terrible outcomes for everything. Like his mind works the same way my mind works, where Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, great. Well, if I do this, then this is going to happen. Or maybe this other terrible thing can happen. And I like his approach towards it and just all of these little things that he shoots off about, oh, well, this wouldn't happen if this would take place. And he's just such a precious character. Yeah. Like, despite the fact that he knows a lot of terrible things are going to happen, he still has so much light to him. Mm-hmm. That's something very nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a good, fun ride. Mm-hmm. So I think I mentioned I haven't seen this one since it actually came out, but I will tell you what has sat with me for the last five years since I've seen it are all of the cameos. I think at some point, and they're very like 2012 cameos too. I think at some point Justin, or yeah, Justin Bieber is a part of it. Lady Gaga shows up. And like you said, like Bill Hader. And I think Hold on, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the cast up. So Jemaine Clement as, or Clement as Boris, um, and he was one of the Flight of the Concords guys. So I don't know if you ever watched that, but that was always just like, and he plays the, um, he voices the character in Moana of the sparkly crab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's a great vo- voice actor, and so that's also fun to see. So the cameos are what stick out to me. Um, And looking back at the cast, like I need to rewatch it because Mike Coulter plays Jay's dad. And that's before we knew Luke Cage. And I would love to go back and see young Mike Coulter. And this idea of time travel. If you situate this in 2012, going back to my media theory roots, if you think about Anytime we get an uptick in time travel movies, a lot of times it's because there's this kind of uncertain, this uncomfortable uncertainty of 
the social environment that we're in. And so I'm wondering, like, is does this speak to the like we were already talking about the post-recession America that we're looking for something that is more fun, like a Coney Islands uh, of days gone by? Or are we romanticizing the past? Are we going back to learn lessons? Are we uncomfortable with where things are currently? I think when we see time travel films, it says something larger about our media culture as a whole. So I'd be curious to know what you guys think about if we situate this in 2012, what was happening then? It was like, you know, four or five years post-recession. It was the, you know, Obama administration. There were some larger natural disasters that were happening. Yeah. And I think that looking back makes us feel safer sometimes. And so I wonder if that comes out, if that's one of the reasons why they chose time travel as the plot device. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't know how long this movie was in development. Yeah. Like if it was a sequel that they had started planning as soon as the second one came out and then it just took so many years to get it made or if it was something they had thought of later. But I do remember something that seemed kind of big at the time, which now we don't even really talk about it, but back in 2012, when everyone was convinced that the world was going to end oh, on yeah. December 21st. <laughs> and I, I do wonder if maybe that had something to do with it, like the Mayan apocalypse huh. or something. Yeah, I've even totally forgotten about that. I didn't think about it quite that deeply. I just thought about it as... We want to do another movie, but Tommy Lee Jones is too old to play an action lead anymore. (laughs) That's also what I'm thinking, too. Like, was the time travel a plot device because of Tommy Lee Jones' age? I don't know. It's curious to think about. Yeah, I was always under the impression that it was probably just practical and, like, especially this director coming back for the third time, he probably doesn't want to do this with new characters. He's Mm -hmm. like, okay how can we adapt to this challenge? We've got all of these sci-fi tools in our arsenal that we can play with. How about we throw in time travel? So we've got the main pair of them and I'm able to like stick with this dynamic I've been working on since like the mid nineties, but also like update it a little bit and be as action packed as we would like the third film to be without making this stodgy old man like put on a harness and some wires and i think it helps that will smith is ageless yes you can just keep having him do action movies he'll never get tired oh no yeah he better not i hope that will smith is immortal that's my one wish for this world (laughs) yeah yeah Mm -hmm. he's a vampire Mm -hmm. yeah i this was the second time i'd seen this movie and i had remembered from the first time i watched it that i liked it but i didn't retain a lot of the specific things which sometimes just happens. It may not be a fault of the actual movie. Sometimes I'm just sort of half checked out. Like I watched it when I was too tired on like a Friday night after a long work week or something like that. But watching it again, I was actually surprised to read at the end that it was also directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. I forgot he came back for this third one because it didn't feel the same as the first two. Like I could see there was a lot of narrative and thematic continuity there's a lot of callbacks like they go to the chinese restaurant that we see briefly in the first movie there's lots of nods to frank like a lot of 
narrative things like that are the same, but stylistically it felt way less quirky. Mm -hmm. It looks uh, a little bit more glossy and a little bit, not homogenous, but like I didn't see a whole lot in the visual styling that would separate this from oh, like another movie, another sci-fi comedy action movie that would be out around this time. And I just remembered the first two movies and how they've got like really interesting camera angles. And this did still have some of that, but like what I was talking about with men in black too, is that it's just chock full of weird background things and to have this third movie come from the same director and the same production designer and have it have a lot less of that depth to it, I was kind of surprised. I still really like the movie. I think the story is great. It is emotionally very affecting, like almost tear jerking there at the end. And I think it really knows what time travel is for. Like it could have gone all crazy, like, what, there's two of me? But instead, it's just like, Time travel is your way to pull aside every curtain and just stand on a moment from your past at a different angle with your eyes all the way open. And like, that's what I love seeing most in time travel stories is just this other angle, just this slight tilt shift of yes, but did you look over there? And that's what this movie gives us at the end with that scene on the beach of Jay figuring out, oh, my dad didn't leave me. My dad died a hero. And because of this alien conspiracy, I was never allowed to know that. Like, it's really beautiful. I just wish it was weirder. But is that the high stakes of a blockbuster film now? Is it has to be glossy in order because it has to make money? You know, I think that the second one especially was speaking to a very specific audience that loved the first. And then I I think we were so looking forward to it that so much money had to go into it because, I mean, Will Smith is like a baller high-paid actor now and so is Tommy Lee Jones like it was a high-budget film I'm sure and it had to make so much money and so it had to appeal to a broader audience and so it had to kind of look like the other films at that time Mm -hmm. and it kind of makes me think too around the time that the third movie came out I don't remember there being a bunch of other very successful like quirky weird movies Mm. and it I think it was just kind of during that time we were really into gritty things and like (laughs) serious things and realism. And so something like Men in Black didn't feel um, as much as, I guess it didn't feel as timely, where I feel like now it could work again. Yeah. And maybe the next movie will kind of go back to that quirkiness because I do Mm -hmm. totally get the glossiness of the third movie compared to the other two. And I feel like now we've kind of gone back to more silly things being mainstream and quirky things. Like you look at all of the Marvel movies and how they started off kind of very realistic and simple and glossy. And now we have the Guardians movies. We have the Ant-Man movies. Mm -hmm. We have Thor Ragnarok and we can kind of allow these movies to be as weird as they want. So maybe it was just kind of reflective of that early 2010 I don't know how to categorize that decade yeah, yet, but yeah. yeah. I don't think I've... Yeah, it's almost as though these big-budget blockbusters had to fit a mold, because that was the same summer that... I mean, we had just gotten out of the Dark Knight trilogy, right? And that was the same su- summer as the first Avengers film, too. So 
I think, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying, I think that we're, that was like the end of one chapter and we're entering with the, with the Marvel canon. I think we're entering like a renaissance of quirky, funky films that are, that speak to a niche audience, but also because they speak to a niche audience, they also like speak to a a broader audience, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what I was really looking for from this movie, what I think it is missing from the first two is less like narrative weirdness and more, this is so specific, but visual weirdness. Mm -hmm. Like you were talking about the Dark Knight trilogy and the Dark Knight Rises. There is a scene where uh, Lieutenant Gordon has been injured and there's a scene in his hospital room and just sitting on his bedside table next to him is this like gift basket of fruit, but it's like this huge bowl of fruit that looks like it's out of a still life or something. And it stuck out to me as like weirdly artificial and placed and completely out of like the sort of down to earth grittiness of the movie. Like it didn't look like, okay, let's go to a store. Let's get a fruit gift basket. Like it didn't look like something you just pick up out of a hospital gift shop. It looked so artistic and aesthetically designed that it like looped back around and it did not become natural. It became artificial. And I'm like, whoa, what's that doing there and that's what I wanted out of Men in Black 3 is more like meticulously purposefully over designed things it's like when you see um, you're looking at like a, a home design show and the home looks great but there's no personal details in it that's kind of what Men in Black 3 feels like to me. It's good. It follows every design principle, but I do want to see like one wacky like birthday party photo on the wall. Something like that, mm-hmm. if that metaphor makes sense. Like it's done, it's crafted very well, but it's got this little level of personal detail that I think is kind of missing. Getting into the ranking, I feel like my ranking may be kind of controversial, but this is just how I feel. I ranked the first Men in Black as number three. Mm. I mean, I love it. I love all of these, but I think it's just kind of an introductory movie. And there's so much more that I love from the other two and more that have stuck with me that the first one just seems like one tiny puzzle piece into a much larger puzzle. Yeah. Okay. My number three is number three. And honestly, I think this is just because... I haven't seen it in in several years. I remember enjoying it in the theater. I remember it being like everything I ever wanted. The, you know, final piece of this, what we thought was going to be a trilogy to be. um, But I didn't love it quite as much as the first two. Yeah, I also put number three at number three. I think it's a very well done film. It's entertaining. It's very emotional. And it gives you this emotional payoff that like, I didn't know that I wanted. And it's very Mm -hmm. satisfying. But the movie did not give me some of the things that I did know that I wanted. (laughs) And I don't know if it's just like, you know, like you were talking about just sort of the culture of film at that time, or just the way that director's style had evolved in like, the 10 years since the previous version. I enjoy it, but it doesn't feel... I don't feel connected to it the way I feel connected to the first two. I ranked Men in Black 2 as number two. I think that this is what I think of when I look back on the series fondly. I have more memories of this one than I do of the first one. And I think it's the perfect length, too. I think this movie is like 88 minutes. Yeah. And it 
it goes in, it does what it needs to do, and then it leaves, and it, it doesn't drag on at any point, and it's, like, perfectly paced, and it's so much fun, and it's just a good time. I have the first one as number two, and that might be a controversial as well, but I'm just going to say that because I really love the second one, so... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also put number one at number two. Like the first movie, it made such an impact on me when I was a kid, and it really shaped my tastes in comedy and sci fi and just world building. And I love the style of this movie so much. It, yeah, I think it, it's one of those movies I'm very glad I saw. I think it was very shaping. Uh, I really treasure it. I will introduce it to whole new generations of people. And I think it really made a mark on the world. And there, I can't think of any other movies that are quite like the first Men in Black. Like it really stands on its own. I ranked Men in Black 3 as number one. I think it's just the perfect swan song to this, this leg of the series since it's continuing. But overall, I think it just has, like, the most heart. Um, The plot is the most ambitious, and it pays off really well. Mm -hmm. And the character development is great. And it's not the best paced. I think the first movie, not the first movie, the second movie has the best pacing. But I just love where this movie goes. And um, maybe it's because I didn't have high expectations for it. Like, as a kid, you just don't have expectations for a movie. You Mm -hmm. just watch the movie, and you typically like it but as an adult when it came out I wasn't looking too forward to it I didn't think it would show me anything new and it showed me a lot of new things Mm -hmm. and I think maybe that might have affected my overall ranking of it too just being so pleasantly surprised with it and feeling like it wasn't unnecessary feeling like it was very necessary as an end to this yeah part of the series yeah it closed a chapter um okay so my number one is obviously Men in Black 2. I think it's because maybe it's the one I've seen the most, but it's really the one when I think, Jack, I think you said when you think of the series, you think of the second one. There are so many iconic moments that make up this film that if you were to reference something like All Hail Jay, All Hail Jay, (laughs) I think that that just makes me feel nostalgic in the best way it's like everything I need maybe it's the now that I'm thinking about it it came out in 2002 maybe it's because that's like the film that I needed when I was a sophomore or junior in high school like it was just like this fun cathartic emotional movie that I needed and maybe that's why I connected to it so much I don't know but to this day it is still one of my favorite films I went back and forth on putting number one or number two first And I did land on number two because I'm like, well, I didn't know if anybody else would pick it for number one. I'm glad you did also. So I'm glad (laughs) this movie is getting that much love. But this is the movie I would most like to live in. I love that it's just this like overnight puzzle chase from weird place to weird place. And everywhere you go, there's something interesting going on in places you never would have dreamed of. Like, oh, that pizza restaurant that just has like the funny wallpaper and the weird stuff on the walls there's something going on there that one locker at grand central station terminal that you never see opened there's something going on there like there's secrets around every corridor and i think that really fits that men in black theme 
of you are just one small part in a much bigger universe. Like the very last scene of the second one. (laughs) Yeah, there's whole worlds out there for you to explore. And Men in Black 2 really gave me that sense of wonder and fun. And I just love artistically... It's just a parade of (laughs) incredibly detailed places. And I think the production designer, Bo Welch, this is some of his finest work. He's had a great career. I just love the way this movie looks. And I love that look so much that it makes me feel wondrous and inspired. Mm -hmm. I do not disagree with any of that. (laughs) Very well said. Definitely. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? What a great trilogy to revisit. Yeah, this was really fun. Yes. This was super fun. I'm glad. I had a really fun time rewatching these. I watched one and two back to back and then the third movie the following day. And nice. it was nice to be able to watch them all within such a close time frame. Yeah. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show, Renee. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. Mm-hmm. You're going to remember this. This isn't a trick. There's not going to be an audio flash at the end that's going to erase this podcast from your memory. So please treasure this time you've spent with us, and we will treasure it too. 